Hey everyone, welcome back. We are in episode two of season three. Um, as I said last week, it's great to be back. Uh, we're joined by Joey. How's it going? Yeah, very good. You, Robin, how are you? Not too bad. And Brian, how are you? I'm doing really well. You, Robin? Yeah, yeah, good. good. We uh, for, for everyone listening, we had a bit of a, a mix-up tonight. We've changed our dates from Thursday to Wednesday. And we've also just come back to the, the podcast, so we're all a little bit rusty. So Keep it behind the curtain, Robin, behind the curtain. <laughs> I haven't had any dinner and I'm having a glass of, glass of wine instead. So it's gonna, <laughs> the show is going to just get better from here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, yeah, we got together on, on pretty short notice tonight. Uh, before we, but before we get into it, Brian, how's your leg going? It's going pretty well. Um, getting back into lots of pool and bike rehab and stuff. So, yeah, there's a fair bit of bend in it, but it's just bugger all stability. So, mm. yeah, it's just about building the muscles back up. But I'm not really in any pain, but I, I'm still so limited. I'm not going to bitch and whinge about it. But, yeah, <laughs> like in terms of standing up all day, and I am horrendous at forgetting things and leaving things across the other side of the shop, as I mentioned the other week. So... I've been doing that the last four days I've been in the workshop. Um, <laughs> but it's been it's been good to be back in, but just having to focus on smaller smaller projects, unfortunately, at the minute. Like even some small projects, you know, you've got to start with dressing large pieces of timber and I can't do that. So it's having to change my whole process. Well, um, just because there's too much movement involved in that process. Just the weight, the weight of carrying yeah. it and the the twisting and the swing of the timber the sort of momentum of it so yeah having to break timber down into shorter lengths and then dress them so it's taking me longer um so yeah it just feels like i'm moving at snail's pace but um it's still good to be in there and doing something yeah yeah getting getting better just something you mentioned there about putting you having to walk around the shop and pick stuff up Mm -hmm. do you well well maybe you've answered this question well do you think about setting up your shop so that you've got everything in the right position? It's so funny you mentioned that the reason I'm bringing this up is just today I was walking across my shop getting my saw and walking back and getting my mallet and then walking somewhere else. And, I, and in my head, I thought, you know, there's so many videos out there about organizing your shop, but I've, I've never really thought about it because the distance is six meters at most. I mean, is that something you think you should have in the shop? I don't know. I think there's two ways you can approach it. Like, I know where everything is in my shop, and it is sort of stuff that's near my workbench tends to be in my hand tools, and, like, all my blades and things and sharpening tools tend to be at another station. So it's it's organized into stations more than as in keeping everything at hand because I'm in 100 square workshops, so it, it's kind of hard to have everything at hand all the time. Um but I kind of, I like that it gets me up to walk. Like, mm. you know, I get 10,000 steps in a day and that's that's a good thing to me. I had somebody criticize me once because I put a, um, I had a time lapse of me in the workshop <laughs> just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> and they criticized me. And I'm like, I did like 14,000 steps that day. I was feeling, feeling pretty good. So mm. I don't know. There's obviously efficiencies and you don't want to be doing that um more than you have to be but i think there's a limit to just being able to sit in a stool and reach and pick everything like you just you can't have every tool at hand so just keep the ones like the primary tools close and then the specialist ones can sort of live at different stations around the workshop 
Yeah. I just wonder if it's one of those things that our grandfather did it, so our father did it, so we did it. You know, the tools are in the workbench. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I keep my, uh, the majority of my power tools in their boxes. Now, admittedly, mm-hmm. I'm not running a 24-hour workshop, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone, like my router lives in its box. And when I want to use my router, I take a box out, take it out of the box. And, um, I imagine anyone who's got any sort of workflow um, mindset, they would, you know, they would be horrified by that. Yeah. I used to do that when I was working on a building site. I would have all my tools in their cases because I could stack them. Each each tool had its own little spot in my van and I could stack it and I knew if there was an empty spot, there was something missing. Um, yeah, but these days, everything, you know, as soon as I buy something, I literally put the case in the bin, like, don't need it. Don't need the little. I don't need the shitty little set of drill bits, and I don't need the case. <laughs> There's people that are anally retentive out there who will buy those, Joey. Don't throw them away. Seriously, Waste everything must be organised. It must be the same colour, and yeah, I don't know. I do keep some sustainers, like for uh, dominoes and thing. My domino machine is still in a sustainer. All the dominoes are in a sustainer that clips to it, and it just slides under a workbench. And to me, that's that's the one thing that sort of needs everything else can live by itself but that's the one thing that i like to make sure that i don't lose the tool if i had that mm. thing lying loose somewhere i would probably need to buy a dozen of those tools to get me through i a did year. that for a while with my domino and then i got to the point where i was like every time i'd get it out i need to find the little adapter for the hose and then go find a vacuum to can plug it in and then the dominoes and then its own little separate thing and that's a pain in the butt so I ended up just making a trolley, and that's the domino trolley. It's got a built-in vacuum. Yep. The tools go on one shelf. Domino fits on another shelf. And then when I bought the lamello, it's essentially the same kind of tool, so that has its own little shelf as well. So it's now the domino and lamello trolley, and we just wheel it to where we're working, plug it in, go for it, roll it back over to the corner. It's finished. So there you go. Joey's got the answer. Trolleys. Yep. <laughs> not tool walls, not cabinets, just a trolley. If you've got a big enough workshop... Yeah, that you can do that. Um, I was nearly going to build one for my clamps the other day. I got fed up carrying um, big Bessie clamps across the workshop, and I was like, would it be good to be able to wheel them? But with my mm. train tracks and things, anything that wheels, mm. yeah. I, to go, gudunk, gudunk. I want to do yeah. that. Uh, I'd like to have all my clamps on a, some kind of A frame rack, mm-hmm. but uh, the footprint I know that's going to take up is just, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm happy enough with them hanging on the wall just vertically and I'll just yeah. grab them off. Uh, yeah. yeah. Talking about new tools, I just got myself a battery-powered saw, circular saw. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, why have I not done that before? <laughs> World-changing <laughs> to just be able to just pick yeah. something up and just cut. And, and obviously, it's, it's a better saw than my five-year-old $100 Makita that I've been using since day dot. It just gets through quickly. The new blade just zips through it. Cut quality is better. And it's just, there's no drama. Is it? You just pick it up and you just cut wood. So left or right-handed? I had never <laughs> considered this. <laughs> I got home and I went, hang on. Yeah. And Because I, I set up to cut. And yeah. I went, That's hang wrong. on, something's wrong here. No, so, it's not that you picked wrong. It's just that they come left-handed, and they've only just now promoting right-handed versions as as like a special thing. Like finally, we bloody worked out that people don't want to be looking on the wrong side of the blade. 
So I, I was trying to work this out. Um, now it's going to be hard to explain this to everyone, but my Makita, the, the 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 widest part of the plate, when I'm holding on my right hand, was towards me, yep. and the guard of the blade it's away from you. It, it was it covered the yeah. blade entirely, so I couldn't see it. Yeah. Now this is the opposite way around. So now when I'm holding my right hand, I can I can see the blade, and. For a couple of days, I, I couldn't work out what the deal was. And then I thought, oh, maybe this is a right-handed saw because I can see the blade so I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eyeballing it the whole time. No, it's, is that, it's the opposite. Is no. that the go? No, it's the opposite. You should have the saw so the blade is away from you and you look over it. And what you do is you look over the saw and see the front cutting edge. So typically the waist side is towards you and the good piece is away from you and the, the, the weight of the saws all towards you. And that's how we would use it on a building site. Um, and, yeah. and and then when they bought out the, the first battery ones, they're all left-handed, and it completely stuffs up your balance. And your, especially if you've been using a skill saw for 10 years on a building site, and you, you just have this instinctive uh, reflex of how your body has to stand to hold the, the saw. And then it's completely opposite. You can't even cut a straight line with it. It's very, very difficult to change to a left-handed saw. Yeah, it threw me completely. But why would, why would they I don't know. do that? <laughs> that it's such no a bizarre sense. thing. Surely, surely studies have shown there are more right-handed people out there. I can't yeah, work out weird. why they bought them all lefties. Uh, all the, for the first probably five years they were out, they were all left-handed. Uh, it doesn't make any bloody sense to me. Now I'm pissed off. Yeah. Battery-powered saws suck. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about them is you can take them, well, you can, you can take them to your timber yard and you can just hack your pieces down to, to length um, when you're picking out your timber. Mm. It's great. But some people, some places don't like you doing that, but, yeah, that's another discussion. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yep. So, like, when I shoot down to the, get some timber, I can just yep. chuck it in the back of the car. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah. So you went, you got a Dewalt, was it? Is that what I saw? Yes. So I yes, yeah, so I'm working on a on a project, and I needed to be able to make some 45 degree cuts. Now we've talked about the track saw in the past, and I've you know I'm, I'm probably still going to go that route, but this was a I need something to cut a 45 degree angle. I just went out and bought the nearest saw that I that I found. Um, so it's not the the expensive one with the the big blade. It's the mm-hmm bottom of the range woman yeah do you did you have other dewalt tools yeah so and that's the other thing so i've got the, so you had the batteries yeah the driver um reciprocating saw yeah i've, yeah, I've got yeah. all of that yeah yeah so again didn't have to yeah, buy the batteries so the skin's much cheaper yeah yeah but yeah if if for everyone listening out there when i remember when i changed from a quarter drill to a battery drill <laughs> it was amazing when i went from using a um, uh, battery powered reciprocating saw to bat- uh, a quarter to battery it is just as cool for the circular saw I didn't think it was going to be that groundbreaking but man it is go get yourself one yep so Joey you put out a video this finally yeah oh, did you? This I, week. I haven't it was, seen it yet it's a couple, couple it's probably not promoted because there's no there's no monetization on them now so um, Google's probably not <laughs> giving anyone notifications <laughs> I did notice that when there was no video on, on or no ad on it. And after yeah. I talk, I thought, ah, oh, there he is. That's it. He's doing it. Cool. Yeah. 
I haven't got through them all, but yeah, most of them don't have any ads on them. So I guess it's a good thing then, Brian, that you didn't watch the video because then we can discuss it in, yeah, in, more, in more detail. But I, I just had a couple of questions. Sure. Um, the first one was about you talked about doing a uh, the MDF doors, how when you notch out a solid panel, it mm-hmm. tends to, to move more than yep. a five panel. Yeah. Is that Does that consistently happen or does it depend on the MDF that you get? Okay, so we'll just clarify quickly um, – Robin's talking about if you're making a cabinet door panel and say a shaker style, most of the big factories these days would just take a solid piece of 18 mil MDF and route a pocket out of the front, say five mil deep. And typically then they'll just put some thermowrap plastic on top of that or have it sprayed with lacquer. What happens with MDF is that you're changing the surface tension quite a lot on one side of the panel. And so you end up having a bow in the panel. Typically, um, what way will it bow? Typically, it will uh, concave um, towards towards that that out, out of the cabinet. Out of yeah. the cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and depending on how s- the squareness of the panel will kind of affect it too. If it's longer one way than it is the other, it can change how the bow um, kind of presents itself. And so I, I did a kitchen a few years back and the client specifically wanted this thermowrapped doors on their kitchen. And so I was like, okay, I'll get the company just to make the doors and I'll, I'll install them. And every one of them was bowed and, and right. it's, and I've got, a, I've got actually got one that was kind of made the wrong size. So I've got it as a sample in my workshop and it is sitting flat with panels on it and, and like my samples bin and I pull that out to show people, and it's just consistently bowed, even if it's sitting flat with weight on it. It just bows. Um, and I've so, seen sorry, it. Sorry, but surely, surely, if that was the case, people would be up in arms. I mean, these people, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to sell them. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you, there's a... Um, you're right. That should be the case. I, I don't know how... Or, I don't know what that process is, if there's some dastardly little secret that these people have to hide hide the bow. It's it's not much, but it's enough where I look at it and go, well, it's not it's not flat, and it costs twice as much as what I can make a door for. Mm. Do, do you really want that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so my point was that if you make a true five-panel door, even out of MDF, I actually find that it, gluing an, a shaker door up in a five-panel piece in MDF works really well because the MDF just glues back together and becomes one piece of MDF again. And that panel is a true internal panel glued fully in place. And um, it, as long as you clamp it up flat, it's going to stay flat. Um, don't have many issues with them warping. No grain direction, no... No, there's no grain direction. You can just glue the whole lot up. We put tongue and groove joints on the rail and styles and the whole lot is just glued together and it just becomes one piece of MDF again. And it's, um, and you have the, this, and you have the, that shaker panel on both sides of the door, which is really nice. When you open oh, yeah. the door, it looks the same on the back. Yeah. Uh, which is meant... And your... Your... Um, um, what would you call them? Your... The person helping you out, not your uh, apprentice. Yeah, my yeah, my assistant. Your assistant, that's the word you use. Your <laughs> assistant. I noticed when the the glue the join went together, the the, the mortise and tenon 
was wasn't the, the tightest that I've seen. But I guess because you've got that internal panel, that that's it's going to be so solid. That yeah. You're never going to have to worry about that. You you could be a little bit more flexible about that. The actual joint. Yeah, the, the actual joint is pretty tight. It's just the depth of the tongue. The depth of the tongue and groove is never spot on, just so we don't have any issues with the, the tongue being too long. Like bottoming out, you, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to have it just be like just too long and you end up with a gap on the rail and style. Mm. So we typically we'll leave it short by a bit and that little gap just gets filled up with glue. Um, but yeah. you're right, as soon as you glue in a, a full panel, um, I, I actually saw some YouTuber showing off how he built a, a five-panel door but went to great lengths to show that you had to have the panel floating um, and put these little rubber balls in the groove to, to stop the panel rattling and stuff. But he used a veneered MDF panel. And I was like, just glue it in. It's not going to move anyway. Yeah. It's the perfect time to glue it in because actually what that does is mean that you don't need to have large uh, tenon in the railer mm-hmm. style because the square shape of the panel is like a diaphragm brace and it's not going anywhere. You just, yeah. You're just making one big square panel. So glue the hell out of them as long as it's not solid timber. Now, what about if you took those, that idea... And instead of, and, and I'm not saying this is necessarily going to be better, but <coughs> oh, excuse me, if you just took your panel or your, your four um, uh, outside pieces and you glued them onto a solid panel, so instead yes. of the panel floating, you just glued it on, does that then, would that defeat the point because those outside panels will interact with the Big sheet. Um, well, I tried that actually recently because I was going through this dilemma of how do I make lots of shaker style panels really quick. Like, and I went. I actually did a project where we used twelve mil plywood and just cut cut it to the full size of the door, like we usually would if it was a flat panel door. And then we took six mil ply and just glued and pinned it on the front hmm. to create that border. Um. And it was reasonably quick, and they seemed to have stayed straight, but there was actually more work. By the time we filled the pinholes and, like, dealt with the, the plywood edge and having to put edging all the way around it for a painted finish, um, it was actually way quicker just to use MDF. Um, mm. So, But if someone didn't want to use MDF, then what I'd do is use solid pine frame and a, a plywood panel. The, the problem becomes that with paint, you end up, it's, it's, it really, the, the client has to decide if they want to see any wood grain coming through the paint. Mm. And that's really what it comes down to. And more and more, I'm actually getting, oh, can we have a smooth finish? So I end up having to use MDF, even though I'd really prefer to using plywood. Yeah. As I haven't seen the video yet, um, you outsource the painting of them to you, Joey? You get a, no, no, I you do, do it in-house. in-house. Yeah, typically we roll everything. Really? Yeah. Using water-based paint or? Yeah, water-based uh, resine lustacryl. So it's like a semi-gloss finish, waterborne enamel. Um, so we always have a project on the go. So, um, so like recently had a client come in. This is a lady who wants a massive house load of cabinetry done. And she saw a piece we were just finishing and said, um, that looks awesome. That's exactly what I want. Um, I said, well, it's actually just rolled paint. We didn't spray it this way. It's not 
twice the pay, twice the cost of regular paint jobs. Um, and she was super impressed. And um, so we get that quite a lot where people say, oh, good spray job. And I'm like, oh, thanks, I rolled it on. <laughs> um, that's, that's, we're pretty good at doing what we do. And um, I, I typically wouldn't, like if people specifically want a sprayed finish from me, if they ask for lacquer, I'll, these days I'll tell them to go somewhere else because I don't want to deal with panels that can't be altered at all. There's nothing mm -hmm. worse than having like, it's like working with glass at that point. You, you can't take a shaving off it. You never know what's going to happen on site, even though you should need to. Um, it's really nice knowing that if I have to, I can just plane the edge off the door and throw a couple we'll more back on. coats of paint on. Yep. Um, it's very easy. To get that kind of finish, you, you go with a short nap roller or what do you? Yeah, really short. Yeah. Well, actually, what yeah, what we've been doing now is using a, a 10 mil, a really long um, roller for primer, and we'll we'll throw on two coats of primer, primer almost immediately. As soon as it's touched dry, we we'll just put the other second coat of primer on and get a really deep, solid white base. Then we will orbit or, orbit all that with 240 grit and block it back till it's dead smooth. And then you can use a, a four mil nap, like a really short nap roller and um, two coats of, of top coat on top of that, and you're pretty much done. The, from, from my experience, the shorter nap becomes, you may get a smoother finish, but it, it's not as consistent. I found myself going from, I started with the shorter nap as well. Oh, yeah. Now I'm up to the 10, 11 mil. For a finish? For, for, yeah. Oh, yeah. Particularly, and maybe it's just a maybe it's just a um, a preference. I'm I'm putting on some water-based poly on a, um, a blanket case, a blanket ch uh, chest at the moment. Chest, yeah. And using a thick um, nap for that, you get a nice textured feel. I, now, me personally, I quite like that. Maybe that's just the thing that you want. Yeah. You'll never get the glass finish, but the I find with the heavier nap, the the it's more consistent. Because with that thin nap, the yeah. edges of the roller start to come into it more, where you start getting that sort of build-up yeah. on the edges. That's true. We have kind of a system where we don't get any roller edges. Um, I prefer not to have that textured look, and I think that's why we get comments about, is this sprayed? Mm -hmm. uh, because you really can't feel that there's any lump. Yeah, I know. I don't want to say lumps, but there is like a... a overall texture yeah, yeah to um so the longer the nap the bigger the texture so the theory then goes the shorter the nap the less um texture you get temperature does start coming into play at that point if it's too hot and the paint's flashing off too quickly um it's not going to get a chance to flatten out anyway so middle of mm. summer is not great for painting um kind of the two off seasons, kind of spring and autumn, are the best times for painting here at least because the paint gets a decent chance to flatten out and sit for kind of 20 minutes before it actually starts flashing off. Um, otherwise, in summer, it's drying within four or five minutes and you, you can barely keep a wet edge on the piece. And would you consider using any of that special cabinet paint? That... Special cabinet paint. What does that mean? <laughs> is, is, <laughs> was that a bit too vague? So you get obviously uh, is, uh, is yours like a two part. An, you're talking about like two part lacquer or something? No, no, not not even not even that complicated. Is yours a, a an enamel or is it just an acrylic? 
Or no, that's no, that's um, it's a water-based it? enamel, and it's, so it's designed an enamel, right. for cabinetry, front doors, window, um, you know, timber window sashes and stuff like that. Okay, so it's not just a normal stuff you'd put on the wall. No, 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 no. That would be like, well, it's hard. To, it's, I can't really even speak in in like colloquial terms because every country seems to have their own term for like what type of paint goes where. Um, hmm. Uh, so I find it very difficult to understand what the Yanks are talking about when it comes to paint because they've got so many abbreviations and different categories of paint, whereas I think mm. most of them are talking about the same thing. Like you've either got true enamel paint, that is Terps cleanup, or you've got a, a waterborne enamel, which is you know water-based cleanup. And I don't think there's many variances in, in there. there. There obviously is different categories of paint, but you basically can narrow them down to those two. Yeah. I'd say a lot of it is branding exercise as well. Yeah. <clears throat> like it'll be the big box store just putting what they'd sell in a, I don't know, a 20 litre tin in a 1 litre tin and jacking the price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cabinet paint. Yeah, calling it something else. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of experience with enamel. Uh, my whole house is just painted with wall paints. Everything gets the same thing. But right. for my cabinets in my kitchen, I went to, to the, the home center and I got a tin of label cabinet paint and it's got a very different smell it's Mm. got a very strong smell it's very thick and i put it on with the foam one of the foam rollers Mm. the it is it dries like like stone it is the hardest paint i've ever used it's incredible now i don't know if that would be different to an animal water cleanup okay water cleanup and it's you, you do two or three coats and the feel, it feels like the, the thermo-wrapped thermo stuff. Right, yeah. Now, as I say, I don't have a lot of experience with enamel, so maybe enamel is there, but, you know, you know maybe it feels the same. But in my head, I imagine it would that be good. <laughs> the next level after enamel in terms of a strength. But, geez, it's expensive. It's properly expensive. You know, a little, I think a little... 500 mil tin was between 30 and 50 bucks. Um, it was uh, substantially more than getting some some en- enamel. That's interesting. So what, say, this this might be an interesting little price thing. Um, what is a liter of paint cost? You like like what you would usually throw around your house? So if I'm you can buy it, up, it by the liter, I'm bringing it up right now to so we can see because. Um, yeah, as I say, I've, I just paint everything. Um, I just paint everything with the, the stuff that you put the on the wall. The stuff I use, the Rosine Lustacro, with my... Somehow I have a trade discount at a paint shop. Um, <clears throat> I pay $87 a litre. Okay, so then actually it's not that expensive. So, um, yeah. 80, 87 a litre? Yeah. That seems really expensive. And that's enough. Uh, Adlita will do, at the moment I'm doing this fancy front door for a villa. It's quite big but and easily get three or four coats on each side of the door and probably have some left over from a litre. So typically I buy paint by the four litres and I'm paying about $230 or something for a four litre. Yeah. I can't find the exact one, but it's around... It's around 50 bucks. I remember that. Right. A litre, yeah. 
Anyway, yeah. it was it's just a super paint, and it's... Um, it sounds an interesting paint. You should flick me what it is, and I will see if I can find it and do a test. Yeah. Do you reckon, like, if they formulated it so it's it's got some etching property into it, is that why they're calling it cabinet paint? So you can just paint over anything without having to pre-prime or... So you get you you get the same brand with a, a primer, and that's oh, the one a primer that you can, as well? you oh, can okay. paint on tiles or whatever. So it's on, not Zenzer, is it? No, no, no. It, I think it's is it White uh, White Knight. I thought it was White Knight, mm. but the um, they're the same brand. The I painted my kitchen melamine with this stuff, and it's mm. actually held up. It's held up pretty. Well. I mean, it's never going to be as good as getting it. Off the shelf. You painted over melamine. Over melamine. It must, it must have some kind of etching property to it. Especially the primer. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it, it was you, you, you sand it, put the primer on, and then you put the paint on. It's typically, so, yeah. if you kind of paint on weird surfaces like that, the only thing I know that does that is the Zinza primer. Uh, Zinza do a bunch of different stuff, but one of their primers is actually um, meths based or essentially it's shellac based primer. And that stuff, yeah. you will stick to anything. You can paint glossy tiles if you want. Um, but it dries in about three seconds, and your paintbrush will go hard. And, like, as soon as you finish, the paintbrush is dead. <laughs> uh, but then you can paint on top of anything you like. Yeah. Okay, it's called Laminate, laminate Paint. Huh. And it's by White Knight. And it comes in a one-liter tin. And I paid $57 for it. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Yeah. If it's, it's that It's hard. really cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be as, as good as if you were buying the cabinet doors pre-finished from the factory. But for refinishing and then obviously, Joe, what you're doing, um, I mean, it would be perfect for that. Hmm. I will yeah. have to think about that. Anyway, Actually, we're woodworkers, yeah. we're not painters. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, the Joey Chalk <laughs> painting masterclass is concluded. Yeah. Um, the, so I had two questions about that video, Joe. The first one was um, about those doors. The second one was about the, the, um, the, the plug that you, that you pulled through the cabinet. Uh, the the power cable? Yeah, 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 yeah. What are the regulations for that? So if anyone out there is building a cabinet and they want to put a plug into the cabinet, what do you have to make sure you're doing? I'm not sure that that really matters. Um, so obviously if you're working with the electrical circuits in the house, uh, I'm pretty sure that Australia has a similar rule to New Zealand is that you can do the work if it's your own house, you're allowed to work on your own circuits Oh, no, you, no, you, you can't do that, yeah. You can run, or so over here, you can run your own circuit, but you can't hook it up to the, the circuit board in the house and make it live. Can't energize it. So um, otherwise, anything, typically you would get a, a registered electrician to do touch anything that is electrical. Uh, certainly if you want to keep your insurance intact, that's what you'll do. I mean more from the perspective of when you're incorporating it into your, your project. When I... Um, when I renovated, well, when I had um, a, a company renovate about a year ago, they put in some PowerPoints and I said to them, I'm going to put a cupboard over this PowerPoint. And they said to me, that's fine as long as you can access the PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you guys were essentially covering up that PowerPoint with an, with another PowerPoint. So No, no, no. Well, so maybe it looked a bit interesting. Uh, on, so there's two ways we go about doing PowerPoints in media cabinets. Generally, it's media cabinet. So either there's existing PowerPoints in the house, which is a typical, you know, typical scene that we find. And generally, what you find when you unscrew a PowerPoint and pull it off the wall, it stays wired to the plug. And generally, there's 100, 150 mil of uh, slack in the cable. So what you can do is drill or cut a hole that is the right size, a square hole in the back of your cabinet, and just pull the, um, the plug through on an angle, through the hole, twist it, screw it back on to the inside. So you're not even rewiring it or anything. No, you're just, all you're doing is shifting it from the face of the wall to the face of the cabinet. Yeah, Um, that's what I've done on my cabinets at home. That's typically what we'll do. Otherwise, if it's a new build, uh, like in that one where the the owner had actually, in my video, the owner had run a cable and all we had to do is drill a hole and then he's going to fit the switch to the inside of the cabinet. Um, so typically on a new build that will happen, we'll just drill a bunch of holes, the cables come through, and then the sparkies can fit, fit the, the plug on, onto the inside of the cabinet. As long as I've got something decent to screw it back to, uh, there's no problem because there's no difference between you screwing to the plywood wall of the cabinet or the plasterboard of the house. But then would that cabinet need to be attached to the wall? Absolutely. It, it's got to be something... Be. It can't be something that you can... Well, it can't be freestanding. Freestanding, yeah. Um, certainly here there's rules about if you're installing something permanent like a TV unit, a bookcase, uh, it can't fall over in an earthquake. So it's got to be attached to the wall firmly enough that it's going to hold itself up. I know you can't really... There's no quantifiable, like, you know, how strong is the earthquake and how, how heavy is the thing and how much inertia does it have? And you, you can't work this stuff out, but you've got to give it your best shot at putting some screws into some studs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I just, I just think it's really interesting for anyone who's thinking of making a project where they put the, the PowerPoint inside because that, it's just it's the slickest finish. Yeah, I mean, you think about how many kitchen islands there are with PowerPoints on the side of them or underneath them or in them. you got these days you have draw, pull-out drawers and the PowerPoint's in the back panel of the drawer mm. and you, you leave your stuff charging in the drawer and then there's a piece of cable that is slack in the back of the cabinet and it just moves in and out with the drawer. And that's why I ask. I, I would imagine from a risk management, from an insurance perspective all of these new places that these plugs are going in, it must be a nightmare. Because yeah, what about LEDs not everywhere? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're only 12 volt generally, but still, it's power, I'm sure. They've got to go somewhere. I'm sure an insurance company will say, oh, 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 there was a spark. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, um, I'm not sure if they have them in New Zealand, do you know Zetter? They do like a range of sockets, really nice, minimal, low profile mm, sockets. Not off the top of my head. Give those guys a, a look. They're really, really nice. Are they for like pop up style ones or like just I've really seen people nice put them on into display? Bedside tables, into yeah. island benches and things. Just yeah. a really simple design. They're, and yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. No, no free ads, but yeah. No, no, yeah, no. Stuff. <laughs> I really like whenever people want like a pop up PowerPoint, I really like 
the ones they use for in floors, they often use them in like commercial buildings and you have like, yeah. like this little aluminium or steel box with a flip up lid. And they're just so like, um, well made because you're in, for industrial settings, but they're so simple because of that as well. And it's just a nice little steel box and it, and it fits really nice in most kitchens. Yep. Yeah. Problem is you also get some, cheap yeah, <laughs> cheap well. and nasty versions <laughs> yeah. which having worked in commercial spaces before when they're cheap and nasty they're off so when i did my kitchen island i ended up just putting the the powerpoints on the side because it was you could just use a regular powerpoint because i went through some of the options of those pop-up ones and I could just see in my head that piece of aluminium popping up and just wobbling and then <laughs> you're holding it, trying to plug something in because it's fighting back against you. Yeah. These look amazing though, uh, Brian. I was just having a quick look. You can, you can tell by the company's website <laughs> the level that their product is going to be at. That's cool. Yeah, it's incredible. They do some nice stuff. Um, I've got one for you. So, um, you know, I'm the kind of... the the guy that gets upset about IP and stuff. Yes. So I had... Here comes uh, a rant. An, yeah. Uh, mini rant. No, no, just curious. Like, having had our discussion last week on what is the point of YouTube. Yeah. Um, so I had an Instagram follower of mine contact me. Um, so shout out to Sechi Design, I think his name is. Um, and he found, or he turned up in his feed, it was somebody doing... Uh, a morbidly obese version of a pinch bench <laughs> with a planter instead of a concrete leg. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks pretty fat and ugly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was like, what do I do? Because I don't really, like, I don't care that they're making it. Like, all yeah. they need to do is just add a bit of credit, and that's fine. What well, do but, you want credit for that, though? I want them. I want them to acknowledge that they have seen my work and that has influenced it, and that's enough for me. Like, but it's a funny thing. Like, there's their stuff. Their stuff is obviously it would be in the kind of DIY zone rather than in the yeah. proper furniture. They're obviously not selling the pieces. Mm. And if it was, if they were selling the pieces, you know, I'm like, I'll offer some kind of cease and desist. Yeah. Uh, whether in the it's, it might just be a, a threat, but. Um, in the DIY world, it's almost complimentary to you rather than precisely. The like I have people contact me and they say, "Can I make this?" For? And I'm like, I'm flattered the fact that they've taken the time to ask me. And I'm mm. like, yeah, sure. Make sure you send me some photos when you're done, and I want to see it. And that's cool. Like I have zero problem with that. But when mm. it's a YouTuber making stuff and making it quite quickly, and ending up with a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand views, and they're actually generating revenue. Mm. from something that is heavily yeah. based on your design. Is I just wanted just, to see how you guys would feel about, like, the implications It's similar of to that. music, I suppose, in that it sense. It is, yeah. It's similar, yeah. but I, I st- not entirely, but... I reckon it, it, music's a lot easier to, yeah. to, to do, prove. To get away with. Oh, yeah. no, I'd say to get oh, away, to get away because with. It's, yeah, because something like what you're talking about is... It's because... Yours isn't a, isn't a three chord progression, which is used a million times over. Mm-hmm. Yours is a is a one off thing. It's only ever been built once. Which, obviously, I won't ask the, who the person was. Where was this YouTuber from? Germany, Australia, Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. 
And you, and do you think that there's any potential ties that this person could have to you? Oh, they've definitely seen my piece. <laughs> the reason I ask yeah, is because, because do they I'm, see... I'm playing devil's yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Is there any chance yeah. that this person has just come up? A either just come up with a design, yeah, by chance, or they've they've subconsciously seen your design and they haven't done I, it on purpose. I, I totally, you know, I'm totally open to the fact that things can be designed on one side of the world and done on the other side of the world without having any tie to them whatsoever. Like I know that there are, but it was the the angles were identical. It's not like right. it was a rough sort of interpretation of the format it was you know it was the same thing but made fatter and but, so um, your work's been in a bunch of different media yeah again to play devil's advocate and it's been quite easy yeah. for someone especially who speaks a different language to yeah. see a picture in some say english magazine and they don't read a word of english and they're yep. from Germany, and they say, oh, that's a nice picture, I'll just uh, make that, because I'm never going to see this, no one's ever going to see it, who knows, or they can't even read who it is. Yeah. I mean, that so is that's, definitely So a that's problem. my question. I'm like, like how, <laughs> how much of a problem is that yeah. when they are dr- generating revenue off it? Yeah. It's, that's, a difficult, uh, that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, I mean, I know they're not earning that much money off a couple of hundred thousand views, but say it is... The, like I know there's a whole host of woodworking channels that just knock off other people's videos yeah. and make a ton of money. Um, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting thing to bring up. Because anyway. you could, I guess you could, you could contact them. I did contact them, yeah. I contacted did you? them okay. and, and I said uh, something along the lines of, I don't mind, like, I, you know, you've done it and that's okay. But I think you should offer some um, credit to the people that inspire your videos. And they instantly commented back and said, not a problem. Uh, sorry about that. And they added me into the bottom of the notes section on, okay. on their YouTube. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever read a notes section on YouTube. But yeah. at least there was something. And the, that was an acknowledgement to me that they they were right. aware yes. of my work. So they yeah. knew exactly who this you was were. Not, yeah. yeah. Right. There's no but point it, playing devil's advocate when you're wrong. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. But, but fair like fair play to them for not saying, Oh, we don't know your work or anything. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was just I mean, another that, moral I mean, quandary about YouTube. I'm sure that happens so many times yeah. a, a second on YouTube that uh, there's too many to even police it. I've told you guys I, I don't know, maybe I haven't. I, I thought I may have. The wireless charging bedside yeah. table that I made. Yeah, you did, yeah. I mean, I built that, and within two months, everyone was doing one. And again, I'm not a huge influencer, but the fact that, that video went to the top of Reddit, mm. I'm pretty sure that would have had a had a, a hand in it, because it mm. was something that was that was doing well. But again, it's just when you put anything out in the public domain, like it's it's just you, one of those I guess things. You've got, you've got to go to bed at night thinking I did that. No mm. one has to know about it. No one has to know that it was me. But I feel validated knowing that I did that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's all you can do. Or you can send everyone a message and say, just so you, just so you know, <laughs> you should really be crediting me. <laughs> that's really cool, though, that they, that they picked up on it. Yeah, it was good. It was good. If you hmm. were to sell plans for it, yeah, how much would you need to sell your plans for 
to be happy that someone would then go and make a replica of what you made. Yeah, you don't have people, to answer, but it's like a. People it's have another, asked me about. People have asked me about the plans, yeah. and I'm like. Because I was just nah. thinking, like, I sell the old plan for stuff, and I don't. It's not. It's completely not about making money. I don't. I should just put them out for free because it's a waste of time to have a little shop on the on the website. Um, but like. Because there are people who make a lot of money on YouTube through YouTube selling plans for stuff, and so that you could because you're selling a plan, you're essentially saying I hereby grant you the right to make this thing, copy yeah. my design, and I guess that's there would be an interesting question for you to ponder is like what would it take if I were to sell the right for someone to use the likeness? What would that be worth to you? That's mm, a, I think if I transitioned into just a content maker i would feel comfortable doing it but if i'm a production furniture maker yeah you're trying to sell a product and i'm yeah. selling a plan that it's different eh? like it's, yeah i don't know when i've had my work knocked off in the past i'm able to tell the difference between it. like it yeah. looks different the proportions are slightly wrong the joinery is slightly wrong whereas if i sell my plans like it's going to be very very difficult for if it's made right very difficult for for me to tell the difference never mind mm. a consumer so mm. i i don't know i had thought about plans years ago for a while and i'm like how much can you actually sell them for what would people well, pay for a, them and what's I'm the i'm not suggesting you do business? it at all i think it's a, it's probably not the best move for anyone who's trying to you know forge their own um design work it seems like counterintuitive mm. to sell your designs for a few bucks I reckon there are probably exceptions to the rule for things like chairs. Um, yeah, yeah. Like a chair to me is a very low margin thing. Yeah. Because there's so much time that has to go into it. Mm. Whereas a lot of woodworkers see it as a rite of passage and want to build a chair, but either don't have the um, skills to design it, um, don't understand the proportions don't understand the joinery that is involved to create like something that is um, going to last as a chair. So something like that, I could see it being worthwhile. If I design that chair, just make a quick prototype of it, sell the plans, and say you sell the plans at, I don't know, 20 or $30 or something like that, and it's out there as a legacy thing forever, and even if it's generating you, I don't know, two or three hundred dollars or something like that a year that's probably as much profit as i would get for making just a set say, of chairs it's you're, mm-hmm. you're probably earning more off selling plans for chairs than you would if you make chairs yeah um, i mean when i make a set of chairs and i i dread people asking me about them um because well it's it's, it's a usually a pretty quick conversation can you make chairs yes they're, they're roughly about twelve hundred dollars each okay see you later Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and let's do like a minimum of six you know like it's only that price if you get six or more <laughs> yep. I mean, what goes into your plans Joey I've thought about it but I've, it I'm not sure what, what people think oh, what, for an what, actual cons- plan to sell yeah what's considered a plan well man mine are bare minimum because I, I mean I, my, like I, I feel like if you don't have some basic wherewithal to like understand three dimensions um 
you're probably sh in the wrong game. <laughs> it's <laughs> not just like a shopping list. And I just give <laughs> like a very basic cat list. Um, like I, I just uh, used uh, like photo, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Adobe Illustrator, drew, drew some sheets of plywood and like just drew up where you need to cut different parts from to actually mm. get what the parts you need from the piece of plywood. That is probably, that's a difficult thing to do for people who don't, aren't used to cutting up plywood is that yeah. you cut the piece you want first without thinking what the offcut looks like. And uh, once you get your head around mentally looking at a sheet of plywood and going, I need that part, but I'm actually going to cut the smallest part first off the very end of my sheet. And then I'm going to cut a little strip off the side and then I'm going to cut the sheet in half. Cause then it gives me all the parts I need at the right size rather than just cracking into cutting the part you need and actually then having to buy an extra sheet. Um, mm. just takes a bit of thought so that's what I give people and then I just give a very basic description of part A is screwed to part B and if you can't work that out see you later <laughs> okay. I'm currently on your website yeah, it just seems like plans, a I'm going to knock it off into a, uh, into a YouTube video <laughs> oh, sweet. Yeah. it just seems like a lot of work a lot yeah. of work to put the plans out if but you're doing proper guys do plans that. yeah if you're doing plans like you would get from any professional like uh, well, cabinets are on my brain. So if you were to go to a custom cab, uh, kitchen company, they're going to give you this like dossier of line drawings that you can't understand. And I think a lot of people are producing that kind of plan and, and really fine detail in that way, because for the time it takes to make a really, really detailed plan is not that much compared to you then being able to sell that, really detailed plan for an extra margin because yours is so detailed but re remembering you only have to draw it once in detail and then you get to sell mm -hmm. it at a you know at a higher profit margin because it's a better plan it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better project or it's even a good design it's just a better plan you mm -hmm. know it looks better speaking of plans i am trying to get a carport built mm -hmm. and carports are expensive Expensive. Jeez. <laughs> a six by seven gable roof. Nothing fancy. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a, I've gone to a, a draftsman who's drawn it up for me. Okay. The, which, for anyone wanting to build, if you're going to get a draftsman, realize that they can't tell you the cost of the project. So you could just come up with a very expensive set of drawings and then walk <laughs> away. Spent like a grand and a half just on drawings. Mm -hmm. Beautiful drawings, but I may not even use them in the end. So a six by seven meter carport, standard gable roof, color bond roof, um, between fourteen and sixteen grand. Mm. Is that so? That's not any kind of kit set. No. Now this is now this is this. I should probably mention this. This is what I'm basing it on. To get a kit for about the same size is between seven and eight grand. And that's like all steel. Like what you always see in Australia, like it's just steel. I don't know what you call them, but everything's just kind of screwed together, steel bits, powder coated. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which I don't want because I just think they look just daggy. Yeah. I don't. I don't no, like them. I don't, I don't like. Typically, functional. the kits look a bit crap. But yeah, so but what do if I want you, to spend an extra? Yeah. So what if you yeah. bought a kit? And then, because I know they've got those awful posts, but what if you then uh, go put some timber around the posts and yeah. pretty it all up, put a 
put a ceiling underneath it and actually like dress it up and make it look like you've just got a steel skeleton and then you clad it like it was a regular building and actually make it look pretty and spend an extra grand on materials and still save yourself what six grand that's that's the route i'm going to look at so either doing that or and this will depend on what the contractors are okay with saying to the guys you put in the posts weld what needs to be welded i'll do all of the yeah the, that's what i do and this is what I wanted to ask you about, Joe. You probably got a bit more knowledge in this, Brian. I'm not sure if you know. From a here here in Queensland, under the Queensland Building Code, I can build anything up to a project that's roughly eleven grand. That's what I'm allowed to do. It's based off price. Yeah. Anything <laughs> which which is crazy because I've got two mm-hmm. quotes, one's sixteen and one's fourteen. So what does price mean? Um but now if I if 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 I do part of the build as just a Joe Schmo, how does how would that affect a the builder's insurance or the builder's liability and my my insurance? Pretty sure insurance probably isn't so much an issue as is that the builder is licensed and he has to sign off his work as being up to code. And he would have to sign off any work you did if it was inside the structural envelope, I suppose as being mm. up to code and he may not be allowed to or able to if you're not part of some registered building um, yeah. kind of association. So I would say that most builders would say, we're going to do the, all of the stuff and you can stick out of it. And that's why I would say to a builder, do the stuff that you have to do, be a minimum, and then I'm going to spend my sweet time making it pr- look pretty. Yeah. Because because it's such a simple design, there's not really two. Because that's what I've said to everyone who's come through to quote. Let me do what I can do. I'll dig the holes. Mm. I'll do. But because see, it's such a simple project, yeah, most not builders much I can would do. probably let you do that. Uh, depending unless unless like most yeah most builders would let clients dig holes. The problem is most clients who say that don't know how to dig a hole, and they can't mm. do it in an hour when the, the builders said allowed an hour to dig the holes, and they're still doing it at lunchtime. Um, oh, and these these are these are twelve hundred deep. Well, that's the thing. Most builders I mean, are probably when... just going to rent a digger and drill it. Yeah, and so it's like this... every it's like every episode of Grand Designs you've ever seen, yeah. where you know the client wants to get involved and they yeah. they're working as a surgeon and they quit their job for <laughs> yeah. twelve months to <laughs> dig holes in a cold, yeah. wet English countryside, as opposed to just letting somebody dig the hole for them. Yeah, it's, you're not yeah. saving any money. Um, when I moved to when I moved to Australia, I didn't have a job, so I, I arrived and and I moved into a house share and I and I just literally sat on the couch looking for work, and I I had a library near me and I just went and rented Grand Design DVDs and I just watched <laughs> episode after oh, episode really? after episode. Um, oh, Ke- Ke- Kevin Kevin is the Kevin, presenter. Yeah. I've yeah. met I've met He's, Kevin. I had I had oh, a yeah. night He's out with man. Kevin in uh, in Melbourne. Oh, cool. Right. I, yeah, I. He seems like a they cool They used guy. to have an event called Grand Designs Live. That's right. That I exhibited. Yeah, at he came and, uh, here. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Hmm. Good fellow. But uh, yeah, don't watch. Jeez, the latest series. I think it's series seventeen. Okay. There's an episode in Devon that will give you the greatest dose of anxiety you've ever had <laughs> in your life from a television program. Okay. Just a client who. Cloy's head strung into something that he shouldn't have hired a crap architect who gave him shit advice and he just kept going and going and going and going 
and borrowing more and more until the bank said no, and then he borrowed from hedge funds. Oh, is this the guy <laughs> on the cliff? Yep. That's oh, my one. God. Yeah, built a, a high, like a floating road off the cliff to get oh, to his, and it just right. all went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't no. seen it, but it is brutal. <laughs> Devon, yeah. I think, was the episode. So, yeah, enjoy. Don't watch it if you're feeling slightly emotional or hungover. Uh, yeah. Or That's planning crazy. on building a house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll look into the, the kit idea. I guess that, uh, maybe that's, that's an idea. That's a good way to save money. It's not going to give you the exact look that you're probably after, but um, compared to obviously making something from scratch, when, when a builder's on site measuring each piece of wood and cutting it to length, that takes longer than it does when everything's just ready to screw together and it comes yeah. in one pack on the back of a truck. And typically those guys, like over here, those companies who make those kit set carports and garages... Uh, they'll do a, a like a fully enclosed six by seven garage in about five days, like finished. So oh yeah yeah so the the, the carport would plate. probably be three days work done finished and then there you go. Well, you can get you can get the kit itself, so I can get yeah. the kit. Oh for yeah, you could do it seven yeah. or eight grand and do it myself. Yeah, or it's generally about another grand to get someone to build it. Right, they reckon. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, we'll see Decisions. how that goes. Yeah. All right, I reckon we will leave it there for tonight. So before before I get into the the outro, every every week or every episode, I say you know please leave us a uh, 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 rating on iTunes. It really does help us out. Some of the reviews I've I've um, obviously it's been a while since we've uh, uh, come back you know for season three. Tonight I was going through a lot of the reviews. Some of the reviews are amazing. I don't think I've shared them with you guys. No. I, I, need, to, I need to give you access to them. Some of them are so cool. Just the awesome. nicest words. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone who does leave those reviews. That does really help us out. So the Shop Store podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify and pretty much anywhere that you get your podcast. Joe and Brian, thanks very much for hanging out, and we will see you guys next time. See ya. Cheers, guys.